This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. Lectures in History joins students in the classroom to hear lectures on campuses across the country on topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9/11. This week, Guilford Technical Community College professor Jeff Kynard teaches a class about Civil War weaponry. All right, guys, how are y'all doing today? Uh, welcome to class. Today, um, as I talked about a little bit earlier this week, we have a special lecturer here, Dr. Jeff Kynard. You may have a class with him. He is the chair of our history and political science program here at Guilford Technical Community College. What you may not know about Dr. Kynard is that he is a military historian. He's uh, an expert in military history. Um, he has published at least four books on anything from weaponry, weaponry from the Civil War, Revolutionary War. Um, he collects a host of artifacts, which he has brought and will share with us today. Uh, he is a Ph.D., a, earned his doctorate from Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. What, what year was that? Now? It was... A while ago, but he's an expert, so if you get an opportunity to take a class with him, take a class. So we are going to continue to, to discuss the Civil War. Thankfully for Dr. Kynard, we get to look at the aspect of weaponry and its impact on the war. So without uh, further ado, I will hand the class over to Dr. Kynard. Okay, well, thank you, well, Dr. Barty. Um, the theme for today's lecture is going to be about technology of warfare. Uh, a lot of our classes we deal with the politics of warfare uh, and just the historical record of warfare. But it, a lot of it comes down to the individual who's in the field and you know the weapons that they were issued because that's what you need for warfare. Uh, but one thing that I found fascinating in research was looking at the early 19th century, in other words, from the years, say, 1800 up till about the the American Civil War from 1860, 61 to 65. This was also a period in the United States of intense invention. I mean, very, um, Americans were incredibly creative at this time. Uh, we were really a world leader in inventing just about everything. Things for, everything from steamships to uh, steam power in factories to um, the telegraph, just layer after layer of invention, creativity. And in a kind of a strange, unfortunate way, though, we see that a lot of these inventors started using their talents in inventing weapons. In, in other words, there was a certain technological um, revolution in weaponry technology during the 18, early 1800s. And this is one of the factors that leads to such high casualties in the American Civil War that you see this throughout history, a repetition, that it takes military leadership very often, if you look through the past, to catch up to military thinking and strategy. It tends to stay in the past war, and technology goes ahead, and then military thinking has to catch up with technology. And what we see is that when we enter the American Civil War, that most military thinking was still along the lines of the American Revolution. In other words, warfare that had happened decades earlier, or even Napoleon just a few years earlier. So that was their hero. A lot of these American generals, their hero 
was Napoleon Bonaparte, they thought was the greatest general in the world and a strategist. But the problem was they had new weapons where they were planning, making their planning based on old weapons. And so that's one thing I'm going to go through is to show this, um, uh, the advances in various weaponry that we see that goes into the American Civil War and how that's going to affect how casualties happen. You know, first of all, um, I brought in the basic weapon of an American Revolutionary War soldier. Uh, this is a, it's actually an American copy of a French musket that was used at the time. Uh, this is, the French called it a Charleville, uh, but it is a single-shot flintlock musket. And anybody ever know anything about these? They are very slow to shoot. And just the weapon itself uh, dictated how any battle would have happened for really over 250 years from the Revolution, well, American Civil War back. For, uh, this kind of weapon dictated how a battle would happen. And it's just because of the limitations. Um, this, this weapon can't really be aimed. Uh, it is a smoothbore uh, weapon, which means that the barrel... Do we all know the, do we know the makeup of one of these? Yes, no? Possibly not. Okay, the basic idea behind the flintlock musket. I'm going to use my artistic genius here. What would be the basic part of this musket, the most important part? It's the barrel. Now you can understand why my freshman art teacher started crying. Um, but if you think of a barrel, it's really just a long pipe. It's just a metal pipe. Uh, and it's plugged up at one end. I'll plug it up here. And it's open at this end. See, this is the barrel. And what, what, what we have here is that we drill a small hole, or they drill a small hole on this side. I'm making a left-hand musket here. And what happens is, if you're going to load this, the soldier is told to load. You know, that's the order. They don't use, uh, a military guy, a soldier, would have taken a cartridge. A cartridge was essentially a round ball like this. This is a round lead ball. These could be 69 to 75 caliber. In other words, three quarters of an inch, about an ounce of lead. This ball itself would have been in a paper tube with gunpowder in it, black powder. The soldier himself would have been told to load. What he would do is he'd raise the musket like this, and then this is the lock. Um, so you would have to take this, which is called the frizzen or the battery. It's very hard steel. You flip that up. This is the hammer. At that time, they called it the cock because it looked like a rooster's head. So that's why you say cock the weapon. You'd pull that back to half cock, you would take, you'd bite off the end of that cartridge, the paper tube, pour a tiny bit of powder right here in what's called the pan. And if you can see through the pan, there's a hole right there, that hole that I just drew. So you put a little bit of powder in this pan. This flips back. It holds the powder in place. You then drop the musket like this. You take the rest of your powder and the ball. You drop it in. You pull out your ramrod. And that is where you get it seated like that. You have to do that. 
Could you imagine if somebody was shooting at you while you're doing this? It is taking a long time. Imagine somebody shooting at you while you're doing this. You then finish that. You're now pretty much ready to go. Your officer or your sergeant says, ready. You pull it to full cock. And then you, they never said aim. They said level. You can't aim these things. Uh, you would just kind of level it at the other side like that and then pull the trigger. You have a piece of flint. This illustrates it much better. This is a pistol from the same time. And this is a piece of flint. This is the steel. And if you do like this, you saw the, the uh, sparks come out. So it's flint hitting the steel. That's why it's called flintlock. If you're lucky, what's going to happen next? <laughs> well, what happens next is when the gun fires, this goes forward. The sparks fall into the pan right here. The sparks go through the hole, hit the powder inside the musket. And with luck, the ball, the, this powder will explode, and the ball will go rolling out the barrel. And if you're lucky, that ball might go how far? 50 yards, 100 yards. It's not going to go very far. And because it's just kind of rattling down the barrel, it's not going to be accurate. If I were shooting towards the back of this room, I might be able to hit somebody. I might not. That'd be kind of discouraging, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time. What's going to happen if it's raining? Would this work? No, because of the spark. Yeah, it's going to get on the powder. The spark won't spark. If it's raining, if it's um, really humid, muggy, that might make it not work. That's also why you as a soldier are then issued the bayonet, which turns your musket into basically a spear. <laughs> and so that's why we have that. So you've got maybe two or three shots in a battle. Then you just are trained to go at your enemy with the musket like that turned into a spear. That is typical fighting. In other words, if you didn't follow a set of rules, the battle wouldn't have worked. Uh, because not only does it take so, so long to load, a musket like this, if it went off, would create a huge amount of smoke. And then if you're thinking you've got several thousand guys firing at the same time, you're going to have massive amounts of smoke. So that's why we see a kind of it's almost rules of war for a couple of hundred years. To make a battle work, you're going to have very inaccurate, slow-firing muskets. And you're going to have a lot of smoke. So for this reason, you have to follow certain rules. Soldiers would line up shoulder to shoulder in line and face another group of soldiers, the enemy soldiers, lined up. In other words, shoulder to shoulder. The idea is I might be aiming at you, but I might hit him. So if I'm shooting, at least I'm going to hit somebody. And the same thing that happens if you're shooting at me, you might not miss me, but you're going to hit the guy next to me. So that is why they have to be very close just to make it work. It's also why you see the soldiers are color-coded. You know, in the uh, American Revolution, what color did the British soldiers wear? Yeah, they were known as the red coats. What color did we wear? Yeah, we wore blue. Do you know why? 
very good that we got our clothes, our weapons from the French. Guess what color the French wore? Blue. So if you go to the American Civil War, you see that that's why we were wearing blue clothes like this in the American, I mean, American Civil War. Federal United States troops wearing blue. The hats they wore, the only reason they wore the hats like this, the French wore hats. We copied everything French. This is called a kepi, you know, like French for cap. So this is the why, why people thought like that. You have to have those colors so you can see each other in a distance, uh, know who each other are. You have to be close together to be able to hit what you're going to shoot. Then we have a breakthrough in technology as we go from the 20s into the 30s to the 1840s. One, of this, one part of this breakthrough is the uh, use of the rifled musket or rifling. Uh, and you all will be able to see this in a minute. Um, the idea is somebody figured out that if you take this barrel and cut grooves in the barrel and make them twist, in other words, the, the grooves twist as they go down the barrel, you're going to take that bullet and instead of having it rattle down the barrel, if you have the bullet just a little bit smaller than the, the bore, the inside of the barrel, that it will fit tightly into those grooves. So you've got this soft lead bullet. And you know, I'll just pass these around. Here's a, a round ball, and there's a bullet, what we call the mini ball, M-I-N-I-E, the mini ball. The mini ball is shaped like what we think of as a bullet. I'm doing a little bit better now. The mini ball, you'll see, if you look at the base of it, it's kind of hollow, isn't it? So if you look inside, it's shaped like this. It's got this hollow in it. The idea is that when you fire the musket, that the power of the, of the charge will make this spread out a little bit. So it'll spread out to here. It'll grab the rifling, and it'll go down that bore and it'll be much, much more accurate. So you can, instead of missing that person at 100 yards, you're going to hit what you're shooting at. As a matter of fact, you can hit somebody 300, 400 yards away. So accuracy jumps way up. You have super accuracy with these things. And you can fire them quickly because instead of having the loose powder, to set it off, they invent what's called a percussion cap. And this is the, I'll pass this one around. This is the percussion cap which I'll switch to the musket I'm talking about. This is a model 1855 rifled musket, which would have been produced at the arsenal at at Harpers Ferry, Virginia at that time. This rifle has the percussion cap right here. It can use a percussion cap. It uses the mini ball that I passed around, and that means your loading is going to be much faster. So taking this cartridge, and again, this is a paper cartridge. This is what you use. You would take a cartridge like this, drop it on the floor. <laughs> By the way, as an archeo- doing archaeological work, you can see where people are trying to load. You can find old battle sites. You can tell the soldiers that were really nervous because you find a, a battle line, you see that they dropped cartridges all the time. They were just being shot at. They were afraid. And you can find mini balls like this where they just dropped them and they're in perfect shape. But the soldier himself would grab this cartridge, 
you put it in the muzzle like that, and you still use your ramrod, but it's fast. A lot of times the guys would just stick it in the dirt like this uh, so that they wouldn't, you know, it would be faster the next time. You pull this back, you put that uh, percussion cap on here, and you can fire. The thing about it is you can hit somebody hundreds of yards away and accurately. This is what led to a lot of the, the casualties in the Civil War. Guys got way too close. There was no way to miss. And you see you know, tens of thousands of soldiers getting killed in a single battle. So this is you know, one of the reasons why we see the casualties. Something very accurate, and it's also showing a lot of the invention. The one thing about this particular rifle, though, and it shows technology that was too far ahead of its time. The rifle itself has an invention on it that was made to, to make the uh, percussion cap even obsolete. Can you see what's going on in there? This is a roll of caps, uh, and these caps are, are like today you could get uh, their toy cap guns. When you cock it, it pulls the cap forward, and so that way you don't even have to put on the percussion cap. So it's automatically priming itself. What's the problem with this? What happens when you run out? What happens when you run out? And very often that was a problem. The soldiers couldn't find the caps, and also they got wet sometimes. Another problem was it's a little bit more complicated than using just the cap. Some soldiers, again, a lot of these soldiers are straight off the farm. They've had almost no, um, you know, almost no experience with real machinery. And it kind of got them confused. So the soldiers or the ordnance officers figured out maybe this is too complicated. So they could still use the cap on it. But you see a, an attempt to make these more, um, yeah, more efficient. So it was a pretty decent uh, idea. In practicality, it didn't work. If, you, if you've got any questions at all, don't feel free to ask. Going to the idea of um, ideas that didn't work. This is, does this look different from that last one? This was an attempt to make uh, a soldier's weapon that you do not have to use a ramrod with. Uh, it was meant to be what we call a breech-loading musket. And the idea is, it's actually they actually equipped it with a bolt. So if you do it right, you pull it back, kind of like a modern weapon. You take your cartridge, you put it in there. You close the bolt. And then it still needs the percussion cap. Guess where? It's on the bottom. So this was what this was, how this one was made. And again, you take your percussion cap and you put it there. What's the problem with that? <laughs> it could fall out. We've noticed that earlier. But if, it's a great idea. It just confused soldiers uh, and was not all that practical. Only about a thousand of these were made. So it was a great experiment. It didn't work. Brilliant idea. But in practicality, it doesn't work.
another great idea that doesn't work. Do you see anything odd about this? What is strange about this? It's got two hammers. The idea behind this was an inventor whose brother had been killed out in the West fighting uh, Native Americans in a battle um, thought that American explorers should have had more shots in their guns. So he creates a two-shot musket where you put two cartridges in the barrel and then, with luck, you have your both hammers caught with, with luck. One trigger fires one hammer, shoots the front cartridge, the next trigger shoots the back cartridge, and you've got two shots in one barrel. How successful do you think this was? Nah, but it was a great idea. Sometimes great ideas just get pushed out into the field and not tested. I think the biggest jump in technology we see in the Civil War as far as firearms would go again. It would not be for infantry. If you know about the military, you have two, three fills of, or at least three branches. You have artillery, you have infantry, you have cavalry. The infantry guys pretty much had these kind of weapons. They were trying to keep it simple. We do see, however, with the cavalry, there was much more innovation with cavalry. These are the soldiers that are on horses. They wanted shorter weapons that could be easy to use while on a horse. And you also wanted weapons that could be fired fairly rapidly and loaded easily. So this is where we see most of the innovation, I would say, or the useful innovation. So I brought several cavalry uh, weapons here, which were uh, invented by individuals. uh, And each one has its own advantages and disadvantages. First one I pick up, does that look a a little bit neater? This is what's known as a Burnside carbine. It was uh, invented by a famous Civil War general uh, by the name of Ambrose Burnside. Guess what style we have that comes from Ambrose Burnside? Guess? Sideburns. The term sideburn, they just switched it around. The term sideburns comes from General Ambrose Burnside, who had magnificent sideburns. Um, So he was famous for that. But he invents this carbine. The guy was a great inventor. He was a terrible general, and he was a terrible businessman. He didn't make a penny off of this, really. He got cheated out of his patents. But it is a brilliant concept. The Burnside carbine has the rifle barrel. It's short. It's easy to carry on your uh, horse. It's got a ring so that you can put it on a strap so you don't lose it. And to fire it, instead of using a ramrod... You press this little lever, and this drops open. So you have the entire inside of this exposed. So that's easy. You don't have to ram things. You do that. And it uses a metallic cartridge. In other words, not made out of paper that could get messed up in the rain. It's got a brass or copper uh, holder for the powder. So the powder is in that copper back. It's got the bullet in the front, and to load it, You just place it right here and then push this forward 
you still have to use the uh, percussion cap, but it's much, much faster to use. It works in the rain, and you can fire probably five to ten times more rounds in the same time as it takes to fire two rounds in one of these, or one round, really. So a big breakthrough. Not to be outdone, another inventor named Smith invents his own carbine. And this is, guess what it's called? The Smith carbine. Uh, Brilliant idea. Uh, If you want to load this, you press a button right here. It pops open. It uses a cartridge like this. It was made out of the lead bullet with a rubber, hard rubber cartridge in the back. That fits right in there, and you close it, and you're ready to go. It also, though, needs... Percussion cap. After you know, after the talk, if y'all want to come in, uh, come up and you know, I love people being able to examine these. This is a good example of looking down the barrel and actually seeing the rifling in it. So you can actually see those grooved cuts in the barrel that makes that bullet spin. Brilliant idea. If, you have, if you've ever heard the term sharpshooter, a lot of people think it comes from this particular carbine. This is called the Sharps carbine, one of the most popular carbines used in the American Civil War. Um, it's nice, it's light, it's handy. To load it, you use a cloth cartridge, either cloth, linen, or made out of animal skin. And to load it, you pull that down, You put your cartridge right there. The back of the cartridge has to be uh, opened. There's like a razor blade in the back of this, and it cuts it off. You're ready to go like a cigar trimmer. And then it also uses the percussion cap. This was one of the more popular guns used in the Civil War. Um, Again, some of the longer ones were used by sharpshooters for sniping. After the Civil War, this became one of the most popular Uh, types of weapons used for buffalo hunting out in the West. So it became a very popular weapon through the entire 1800s, really. So this is the famous Sharps carbine. The most revolutionary carbine was this carbine. Uh, This was invented by a man named Christopher Spencer, Uh, And Spencer came up with several brilliant ideas, one of which was a new cartridge. His cartridge was totally self-contained. It looks like, uh, pretty much like a modern cartridge, doesn't it? It's uh, like, it looks like a giant 22. His cartridge was the standard lead mini ball, but the cartridge itself is totally self-contained. It has the powder in this copper case, And instead of having a percussion cap for priming, the primer is in that rim around the base of it. So it has the rim going around the base of the cartridge. So you don't need a percussion cap. Is that a big jump? Mm -hmm. It's a huge jump. And if that wasn't a jump enough, to load it, he invents a magazine that goes in the back of the uh, carbine. So this magazine holds seven cartridges. So if, you're, if you have a Spencer carbine 
And if you're in a battle, a fight, the soldiers would typically have the thing loaded with this magazine like that. They would have had seven magazines in a pouch or in a box attached to their saddle. And so to fire it, all you had to do is load it, do that, cock it, fire it. So you can shoot it uh, just dozens of shots within a very brief time. It was incredibly effective. Does the Army adopt it? Why would the Army not adopt it? It's simple. It's very efficient, super well made. But why would they not adopt it? It wasn't that expensive, but it was expensive to shoot. The Army, uh, the, the guys counting the beans were looking at it, and they're going, soldiers will waste too much ammunition. They said, it's too easy to shoot. Soldiers will waste ammunition. We're not going to, uh, to buy this gun for the, for the Army. That makes sense, doesn't it? Spencer was one of those guys who doesn't give up. In a famous story, Spencer takes one of his carbines. He's frustrated with dealing straight with the Army. He goes directly to the White House. He gets a meeting with Abraham Lincoln. And in a famous story, he and Abraham Lincoln go out on the White House grounds. And Abraham Lincoln gets to test fire one of these himself. As soon as he does this, Lincoln orders his generals, you're accepting this rifle. And so that's, that it took a, really a presidential order to take one of these so, uh, or for us to adopt this. So this is the famous Spencer carbine. Works wonderfully. As soon as Lincoln was dead, at the end of the Civil War, the Army took back all of these uh, Spencer carbines, put a little device on it that turned them into single-shot carbines. <laughs> so uh, they were still worried about the money. But still a beautiful idea. Going back to the cavalry, we also see another jump in technology. Before the Civil War, if you had a pistol, this was probably what it looked like. A single shot, either flintlock or percussion pistol. Um, you notice it's also kind of shaped like a, a club. It works great with one shot, then you can bonk somebody with it. Not very accurate, doesn't go very far, 20, 30 yards, maybe. Um, not an efficient weapon. Famously, an American inventor by the name of Samuel Colt, who was a sailor at the time, he invents what we call the revolver while he is in a ship sailing around in the Pacific. Sitting around, he just liked to carve stuff. And he comes up with the idea of the revolver. It's a percussion weapon, but you have... He creates the cylinder, and again, this is rifled, by the way. It's a cylinder with six cartridges in it. The cartridge was a little thing like this. It's got the powder in a piece of, like, skin or paper. Uh, and with a Colt revolver, you take your cartridge, you put it in the front of your cylinder. This is a ramrod, so you ram each one in. You put your percussion cap. It uses little tiny ones. You put your percussion cap on it. So you load it. You put your percussion cap on it back here. So in that effect, you have six cartridges in this pistol. So just to uh, fire it, all you have to do is cock it, pull the trigger, cock it. And with each cock, the cylinder revolves, and you've got six shots. It's a big jump from having a single-shot pistol to a six-shot pistol. Yes, ma'am. Um, did you have to use, like, 
every single time you want to shoot? Each, each, it's each uh, cylinder has to have a percussion cap. So this would have six percussion caps and six cartridges in it. And so, you know, it, it takes a while to load. Uh, that's the disadvantage of the Colt. Uh, it takes a little while to load it. You load it in advanced. And most of these guys will carry two pistols at a time. So that gives you 12 shots. So if you consider a cavalryman, if you had the Spencer carbine, you've got a massive number of shots from the carbine. Then with two of these, you have 12 shots from the pistol. And again, I've seen an um, archaeological site outside of Greensboro where you can see that there was a, a, a Confederate position of local Confederate soldiers who had conventional muskets like this, and they were facing a much, much smaller Union or Federal cavalry uh, unit. And you could tell that this tiny cavalry unit held off a much larger Confederate infantry unit because the cavalry soldiers had revolvers like this and Spencer carbines. And you could tell this what was happening because you could see these cartridges left on the ground that were about three inches under the dirt. So you could see how effective the massive firepower coming from cartridge uh, carbine and cartridge revolver. Problem with you know, that just reminds me that Colt, even though a great inventor, held back invention in America for decades because of his patent rights. He patented this revolver action, and nobody else could really use it unless they bought a patent or they infringed on the patent. So he held it back. Uh, a much better pistol came out during the same time, which was this one, and I can illustrate this. This is a uh, Remington revolver, the second most used pistol in the American Civil War, but it's a much better pistol than the Colt, especially if you like to fire rapidly. It's much heavier made. It feels much more solid. Uh, and it could be loaded much faster than the Colt. To load this thing, again, it works the same, but you cock this, and all you have to do to load it, you can drop the cylinder out. So you can replace the cylinder. Here's the cylinder. And it's a little bit heavy, isn't it? But you can see on the back, you'd put those caps on the back. You load it from the front. And some of these cavalry uh, soldiers would carry a bunch of those in a bag. So if you have, it'd be like loading it like a magazine. So they would have much more shots than otherwise. So let's see here. I think so we can have a little bit of questions. I will show one thing that is, I find somewhat interesting in that the ability to manufacture modern uh, equipment during the Civil War. There's a difference between what was issued to the South, what was issued to the North. Um, when the Civil War started, the North already had good resources and they had developed their manufacturing skills and their factories. It was, much, it was not like that here in the South. This was agricultural. We, we did not have the manufacturing skills in the South to match the North. And you can really see that in some of the weapons that were produced at the time. Also, the thinking. At the beginning of the Civil War, there were very few arsenals in the South. There were not that many um, resources to create weapons. And thinking about behind the times, one of the first weapons produced by Southern arsenals, and this is excavated, 
This is called a pike or a spear. So early Confederate soldiers out of Georgia were issued spears <laughs> to use against Union forces. Not really a good idea, was it? But, I mean, they, were using, that's, they didn't last, but they were using something as primitive as that. They decided to copy Union weapons. Here's the basic cavalry saber of federal soldiers or United States soldiers in the Civil War. Beautifully made. It was made in Massachusetts. Uh, beautiful leather, beautiful workmanship. Makes a nice ring, doesn't it? But uh, you can see it's beautifully made, beautifully balanced. Um, you can see it's dated, inspected. Uh, manufacturing marks are all over it. This went through an intense inspection program. Beautifully made. But is it that sharp, though? Um, it's sharp enough. But one thing that they found out that very quickly, it's almost like you had to have a sword because it was part of your ego but you, you probably never would use it. Because if I'm going at you with a sword and you're coming at me with one of this, one of these, who's going to win? Yeah, it got to the point where people, you know, it's almost like you had to have a sword because, well, you just have to have one. But um, they, they didn't get used that much. This is a good example of a federal sword, beautiful quality. On the other hand, this sword was made here in North Carolina down at Keenansville near Wilmington at about the same time. Do you see any differences so far? If you look, very simple, very crude looking. The blade is dark, but the blade is not as well balanced. Uh, it's not as well made. It has no markings on it other than a couple of um, Roman numerals. But if you look at the scabbard, you can see a seam down it. It's like whoever made this was not that good at it. So um, the, the stuff made in the South is not as good. It's cruder made and not of quality. Another example of that, <laughs> we'll have a sword fight in a few minutes. Um, another example of that is... As I showed earlier, this is a federally made, United States government made uh, musket. Beautiful, condi I mean, you can look at it, beautiful workmanship, everything about it, inspected multiple times, beautifully made. The problem in the South was they just did not have the manufacturing capabilities. They tried to copy federal um, designs. This is a musket made, a couple, this was made in Richmond, Virginia. This is a Confederate musket, which is a copy of the Union musket, the Federal musket. And you can see it's, okay, it's darker, it's not in as good a shape, but you can see the Federal musket had this me mechanism here. In the Confederate version, they didn't know how to make that, so they just left it off. And so it's a little bit cruder. Another issue we have, skilled workers in the South. Biggest example locally, there were multiple rifle-making shops here in Guilford County, multiple. And one of them was out um, off of 85 on, let's see, Rock Creek Dairy Road, if you know that. One of the exits off of 85. There was a Confederate rifle factory there, North Carolina made. 
They were doing a great job of baking muskets, but I found the paperwork for this musket factory here in town, or in Guilford County. And I'm finding in the paperwork that, this is sort of sad, they'd been working and working and working. They had almost finished all of these muskets. They had a big order of muskets ready to go, but muskets need springs. You know, if you notice, to make a cockpack, you need a big spring. They have something like three springs that need to be in that musket, two to three. And it won't work without them. Here in Guilford County, we had one man in Guilford County in 1862 who could actually make good springs. In the whole county, one guy who could do this. That's kind of sad, isn't it? And what was the problem with this one man who made springs for this factory? No, he was really good friends with a local moonshiner. They could, I mean, he would disappear for weeks at a time. So they would have everything ready to go, but because of only one guy who was not dependable, uh, that held up production. So we see that uh, that was another one of the issues. Any questions at this point? We're getting kind of close to time, but yes, sir. Yeah. So, so between the first bull run and Appomattox, with the sort of the change in weapons, is there a shift in battle tactics do we see? Or have you found that there were, the proximity was further away for the soldiers or was, did the Federals or Union realize that, hey, we've got these better weapons, let's go ahead and keep the close proximity, we'll come out sort of better for it? Or? Sadly, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you would think. You see some changes in cavalry tactics but for the most part, they just don't seem to have, it doesn't seem to have registered on them. That you still see massive casualties towards the end. These big groups of soldiers marching in and just getting mowed down. You know, one, one, one volley can just drop dozens of guys at one time. They were still doing it. And again, that shows after the war. Uh, you know, the, the Ordnance Department had them turn the uh, Spencer carbine back into a single shot. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to know, what are those big bullets over there? Are the those- big bullets. Um, these are artillery shells. Uh, and they also show that jump in technology. Uh, this is what you would have seen fired at, in a cannon during the Revolutionary War. This is a cannonball from the Battle of Guilford Courthouse here in Guilford, well, Guilford County. Uh, basically, it's just a big iron ball. If it hits you, it's going to make a mess, but it has to hit you. Uh, That was one of the other changes. During the American Civil War, they made the jump to shells. Inside of this, this is a Civil War cannonball found at Bentonville, which was a big battle here in North Carolina in 1865. The big jump, you had explosives inside of this and a very complex fuse and these would explode. You, you could time it by doing the fuse. You could fire this at troops and up to five seconds delay. And when it got to where you wanted it to go, it would explode. Chunks would break off. It was filled with bullets that could go out and hit. And this was much more deadly. Um, and yeah. And here's one. This was found at Bull Run or Manassas, that's one, that's one little bit that throws people off. 
these battles during the Civil War typically had two names. The South named the battle after the local town. The North named it after the local body of water. So the first battle of the war, the battle of the first battle in the South, it was called Manassas because of the town. In the North, it was called Bull Run because of Bull Run Creek. But that's where this was found. And this was an artillery shell fired out of a cannon, weighs 10 pounds, but you can see it's shaped like a bullet. This came out of a rifled artillery piece, cannon. So it could go much farther than, say, a Revolutionary War cannon. So the cannoneers firing this, it has a fuse, it would explode, uh, and this would go much farther, much more accurately, and again, it would explode, making it much deadlier than anything else you would have seen in the Revolutionary War. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. it's, it's heavy, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Anyone else? Well, if that's the case, I've also got other things if you want to see. Basically, articles of clothing. Um, again, what you would have been wearing in July at Manassas if you were in the Union artillery. Wool. <laughs> so this was what people wore at the time. These soldiers are wearing wool clothes, wool pants, long sleeves, shirt, jacket, vest. And that's, it would have not only been unpleasant being fired at, you would have been burning up hot. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to know, like, how did you, like, gather all this stuff? And then also, I noticed there's, like, some initials on that gun. Is that your initials, or is that, like, a soldier from back in the day's initials? I love that. Okay. Uh, actually, I'm old enough. These were issued to me, and I just kept them. Um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, I've been... This is part of my profession. I've been doing this for years. Uh, and, yeah, it is true. You'll see some of these have been personalized by soldiers. And um, you don't see it as much in Union weapons, but in the South, sometimes, like, this was made in the North. This was captured by a Southern soldier, and I, he was just personalizing it. A lot of times in the military, you spend a lot of times just bored. Mm-hmm. So you'll see things like that. You know, somebody with the initials J.E. had that. This one, right, um, I think over here, uh, you can see very, you know, a lot of the guys personalized their muskets. And they did other things, for example, yeah. What else do you do when you get bored? Here is a bullet that the person carved into a fishing lure. No, it's a fishing, I mean, it's a weight for a fishing line. So he took a bullet, he carved it, and you can tie your line here. So this was made for fishing. So you see things like that, soldiers personalized just about everything they had. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's exactly what, you know, they, they would do. You see that quite often. Somebody else. Yes, sir. So, like, um, with um, black powder rifles in general, it seems like they'd kick pretty hard. What inventions would come around this time or even later that would make the recoil a little better? I like that. Um, yeah, they, they do kick, uh, and they, they kicked more the, the more you fired it. I mean, that, that was another issue that I didn't mention, that you don't really see something that will lower the kick. I mean, you could take some, put less powder in it, that's going to do that. Uh, but they wouldn't want to do that, that takes away range. But it does illustrate one of the problems with these muskets. Um, if black powder is dirty, 
if you, fi- if you fire a black powder weapon, it leaves a lot of crud residue in the barrel. And it's kind of grainy, and it's black, and it's messy. But every time you fire a black powder musket, it leaves this residue in the, in the rifle, which means that it gets harder and harder to load. So each time you load it, you have to really ram that ramrod down. And so that, that, that was one of the problems. I don't see any issue with the uh, later on, they invent devices that help with the recoil. But these things, they do kick. Um, and again, they kicked more when it was harder to load them because you had more buildup in them. And again, I've, if you want to come up afterwards, I've, I've got bullets here that you can actually see where the soldier had to really ram it. You see the uh, impression of the end of the ramrod in these bullets before they got fired because you had to, the guy had to just really cram it down like that. But that was a good question. No, they, they, they still kick. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, I know you showed us the uh, wool coats that they wore during battle. Were there um, numbers that were shown that showed large casualties not from puncture wounds, from ammunition and things like that, as in like heat stroke and things like that, they, from hiking and traveling for war? More people, I mean, more people during the, that was a great question, thank you. Uh, more soldiers died of disease and other problems than really bullets. Yeah, when you're looking at casualties, um, you see almost no casualties from, say, the bayonet. Because, you know, during the Revolutionary War, you were supposed to get close to use it. It was great. But you're not going to get close enough to the, to the other guy to use it. If you're a Civil War soldier, what do you use your bayonet more than anything else for? Stick it in the ground, put a candle on it. It makes a lovely candle holder. I mean, really, I mean, you're, you're sitting around, you're going, that's what they would use it for. I mean, you're, you don't, I've looked at all sorts of casualties. You rarely see ca- wounds from a bayonet. You rarely see wounds from a sword because you couldn't get close enough. Um, you see quite a few wounds from the, the biggest wounds... Damage comes from the rifle musket. This is the biggest weapon. But the soldiers are in camp. Uh, this is pre, uh, the idea of pre-germs and things like that. So the, the big killer would have been things like, um, well, any kind of disease going through camp, like measles could kill people. But you see uh, dysentery being a big killer, uh, typhoid being a big killer. But again, yeah, I've, I've seen issues of heat stroke because I just do not see you know, the, how people could have fought in, the, in weather at that time. Like uh, Gettysburg is in the middle, of the middle of the summer. It's in early July. And uh, to me, it's just phenomenal. You can, you can, this is summer weight. It's also winter weight. But a soldier would have been wearing uh, really long johns, flannel long johns, with a linen shirt and that coat, and you couldn't leave it unbuttoned. It was part of the uniform. It had to be buttoned. And so you're wearing that. You would have been wearing woolen pants <laughs> um, and an almost useless woolen cap. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the evidence. And the shoes, by the way, leather soles, and the shoes would have been hideously uncomfortable. Uh, and you'll notice that they were not, the sole was not sewed on. They were pegged on with little pegs. So um, if you want to see that, that's, that's but um, 
Christmas. Yeah, I mean, there's evidence that, yeah, you would have seen these soldiers, and I've read a lot of letters where they were just dying of thirst. They have a very low-capacity canteen, and, yeah, you would have seen people dropping from heat stroke. So since this is nationally televised, I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question. In your mind, in your research, is Gettysburg still considered the major turning point, or do you see it as being something else or another set of circumstances? Um, yes, I, I would say it would be the big turning point. Uh, I, it's, I, I know some people would disagree, but um, Gettysburg was a desperate move by the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, of trying to get a major victory on northern home soil. And his biggest purpose for that would have been to bring in European help to the South. A lot of people in the South, a lot of the leadership in the South, were really counting on bringing in France and England on the side of the South uh, to go against the United States. Uh, and you know, one of, one of my research topics was a, a French nobleman who right up to the very end in 1865 was hoping to bring France in on the side of the Confederacy. What these northern, I'm sorry, what these European powers were looking for was to see if the South had a chance of winning or at least coming up with a negotiated truth. Truce, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so that's what, that's what Lee was doing. If it had been a great victory on northern soil, it might have persuaded some foreign powers to at least recognize the Confederacy as, a, as, its own, as an independent government. But that fell through. And so it was a little bit delusional, I think, or very delusional, but that was the big goal. And once he lost that... The war still goes on. There are horrendous battles afterwards, but I think that really was the turning point. Anybody else? Any other questions? Well, thank you. And if anybody wants to come down and uh, enjoy and take a look, and uh, if you've never held a musket, here, here's your chance. Uh, let's give a hand to Dr. Kinder for visiting. Um, again, uh, be prepared for your second exam coming up next week. Thank you for being here. If you'd like to come down and look at the weapons, please come down and Dr. Kynard will hang out a little while and let you sort of touch and see what he brought. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.